I'd like to turn once again to Paul's letter to the Ephesians at chapter 1, reading at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Especially words there in verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The, the primary need for the Christian church today is to realize, to understand what it means to be a Christian. So what does it mean? that we are Christians? What does it mean to the world around us that we are Christians and that we worship the living and the true God and Christ Jesus whom he has sent? Now, we need to know. We need to understand what our testimony is about. We need to know how we should be recognized by the world around us. Because that's how the early Christians impacted their society. People knew who they were. They knew that they were Christians. They were given the name Christians out in Tarsus, where Paul lived. When they went there, the, uh, the early believers in the Lord were called Christians, the, the followers of Christ. So they were the Christ ones. And that's how the world should know us also, that we are the ones who follow Christ. We are the ones who worship Christ, who call upon the name of Christ. And yet we are so unlike the New Testament description of those early Christians. So what is it uh, this particular chapter, the early verses of this chapter, tell us about who we are and what we should be? What is a Christian? Well, we're told a Christian is a saint, someone who is holy, someone who has been set apart. Set apart by God even as the children of Israel were set apart. We know that Abraham was called out from humanity to establish a new nation of Israel. The nation of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob who took the name Israel after he wrestled with God at Penuel. And so Abraham was called out from the mass of humanity. And there was established by God a people, his own peculiar people, to be separated to him. Uh, they were a chosen generation. They were a peculiar people. And so should we be. We should be a chosen generation. We should be a peculiar people. Known for who we worship. Known for our life and our walk and our conversation. That we are Christ and we seek to serve him. We are in the world. We have to be in the world because we are born into the world. We make our living in this world. We have to engage in all the commerce and business of this world. 
But we are not of the world. We don't, or we should not, engage in its recreation. Uh, we should not engage in its pastimes. We should not go to the places they naturally and habitually go to. Because if we do, we are entering into the devil's province and the devil's playground. And we really have no business in being in such places. We need to be a separated people. A people separated unto God and by God himself. But not only are we set apart outwardly. Not only has God chosen to separate us out from the mass of humanity by calling us to be his own people. He has separated us also inwardly. He has cleansed us from the guilt of sin. This inward cleansing, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, applied to us because of the work the Lord Jesus Christ did for us and for our salvation. We are cleansed from the guilt of sin. We are cleansed from the pollution of sin that's around us. We know that sin abounds and sin is in the world all around us. And yet we are separated from it. We're separated from the guilt of it. We're separated even from the pollution that sin brings into this world. And we are set apart outwardly. But the inward cleansing, the inward separation is, is just as important, if not much more important. The hymn writer says, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We are a redeemed people. This is the inward cleansing and the inward separation. We spoke about it this morning, about our being ready. Were we redeemed? Were we washed? Were we reconciled? Well, the same sort of question is, is being asked here in this chapter. Are we part of that people, of those Christians who have been redeemed and cleansed and forgiven and justified? And, and if we are, then this inward cleansing also leads to uh, a separation of the world in which we live. Separated not because of something that's innate in us, but separated because of what the Holy Spirit has worked in us. We are given the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us, give us the wisdom to live as Christians in this world and to be witnesses and bear testimony as to whose we are and whom we seek to serve. And so the Holy Spirit gives us new desires. He fills us with a new hope that we will be with Christ where he is in the glory he had with the Father before the world was. He makes us a holy a separated people, a people who are called saints in the scriptures. The word, the Greek word is hagios. It's someone who is separated to be holy. And the Holy Spirit works all these things each and every day. And every Christian is a saint. Now you know the Roman Catholic Church beatifies human beings and says these only are people who can be called saints. But the scripture says every believer is a saint. Every believer is someone who has been separated from the world, who is called to be holy, 
who is called to be part of the great family of the living God. And so we are called to be saints. We are also called to be faithful. That it says in verse 2. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Full of faith. Full of loyalty to Christ. And all that he has accomplished for us and for our salvation. So what makes us Christians? What enables people to see whose we are? What enables people to see that we are Christians and we are different from them? Well, it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us Christians. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of God, a gift without repentance. The Holy Spirit given to us and enabling us to understand the Scriptures. Giving us the desire to be in the Scriptures often. Making it our very lifeblood and the very breath that we breathe. Giving us the desire to be in the means of grace. And giving us the desire to understand more deeply what the Scriptures reveal to us. All these are things the Holy Spirit works in us. If we think back to the time before we were called, before we were, we were converted, we can think how different our lives were to what they are now. We had perhaps a passing interest in the Scriptures. But now it's an all-consuming interest. We want to know the depth of the teaching the Lord gave to us through the prophets and, and the apostles. And so the Holy Spirit gives us a desire to believe in the Christian truth that is revealed to us here in the Scriptures. See, a Christian is not merely a nice man. Not someone who's become moral, has turned over a new leaf, and has become godly, taken responsibility for his life. But a Christian is a new creation. He's a member of the Christian church, yes, but that is what makes him a moral man. What makes him a new and a moral man is that he's a new creation. A new creation in Christ Jesus by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he's a new creation who believes certain things about Jesus Christ. Now the world has no interest in Christ. And those outside the church perhaps only use the name Christ as, as a blasphemy or, or some word of 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 passing interest as they, as they live out their days. But for the Christian, Jesus Christ is our Lord and he is our God. We fall before him in wonder and in love and in praise. And we believe certain things about Christ, about the person of Christ, of who he is, that he is the eternal Son of God who has become carnate, who has come and lived on this earth as a human being. He is he is the one who has been made flesh and who dwells among us. He was born into this world through the virgin birth of his mother, the Virgin Mary. He took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, taking to himself manhood in the womb of the Virgin Mary and so born of her, yet without sin. We believe in the death of Christ. There was a death not for himself and for his, for his own sins, but for us, a vicarious death. What he suffered was for us and for our salvation. 
or what he had to undergo was that so that we might be saved. And so we are led to believe and, and to rejoice in this belief that his death and his sufferings are for us and for our salvation. If he hadn't died, our hope of a salvation in, in God would be without any foundation whatsoever. We believe in the resurrection. We are those who believe that there's a day coming when we, those who are dead in Christ, shall be resurrected. And they shall join with the angels in the air and so be forever with the Lord. We are those who believe in, in, in the great work that was carried out on the day of Pentecost when the Lord Jesus Christ showed himself there alive in Jerusalem. A Jerusalem that still has that temple platform still there today. And that's where Jesus Christ met with his disciples and where the Spirit came and where there were tongues of fire exhibited on that platform. That platform that is there today is historical reality that that's where it happened and that's where it was experienced. And on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men were converted on that one day but the outpouring of God's Spirit upon that people as they were brought to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes us Christians. Not because we're born into a family of Christians, not because we attend a Christian church, not because there's some sort of genealogy where we can prove we belong to some particular family or some have a particular history, but the Holy Spirit indwelling us giving us new hope and, and new ideas and new beliefs, beliefs that we didn't have before. And so we are brought to see that the Lord Jesus Christ is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's not just some merely intellectual understanding, but it's a heart knowledge. While we are in the world, uh, there's a tendency for our eyes, for our understanding to be darkened. We are surrounded by darkness. We are surrounded by a world who doesn't want to know anything of the light that there is in Christ Jesus. And so there's a tendency for our eyes, for our understanding uh, to be darkened. And as long as we're in this world, we shall need the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds into the knowledge of the truth again and again. It's a continual work. As the world seeks to darken that understanding, the whole the Holy Spirit works in us to bring light, the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, so that we are brought to know more and more of Christ's work and understand more and more of God's plan of redemption by Jesus Christ. And the question we have to continually ask ourselves is, do we know this God? Do we know this God that we are speaking about here? Do we know the person whom Paul is talking about here? Remember Paul here goes on to give some substance to what he is saying. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints cease not to give thanks 
for you. And Paul tells them the substance of his prayer. He tells them what he is he's praying for. He ceases not to give thanks for them. Praying to a God he knows. The God and God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things we can notice here is that Paul prays to God the Father. He doesn't pray here to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is praying to God the Father. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is a pattern of the way our prayer should be. We pray to our Father who is in heaven. The God who so loved the world and that he gave his Son into the world. That verse speaks of God's love towards us who have been brought to know the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And that's the person to whom we should find ourselves praying. He brings us to understand that this God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who gives us wisdom and the one who gives us understanding. And he prays, as I said, that the light of our understanding might be enlightened so that we may know the hope of God's calling. And that's what we're going to look at here for a short time. The hope of the calling that is in Christ Jesus. While we are in the world, as I said, there's a tendency for our understanding to be darkened. There's a sense almost of a, a spiritual short-sightedness overtaking us. For those of us who are older, we know what a cataract is, you know what a cataract forms on the eye, and the, the, the eyes become not as clear as they once were. And in a sense, that's what the world does to us as we live here in this world. And Paul is praying here that the eyes of our understanding might be enlightened, that that spiritual myopia might be relieved from our lives. And so, what is this calling that Paul is talking about? Paul wants us to know the hope of God's calling. What is this calling that Paul here is talking about? Well, there are two calls in Scripture. There is a, a general call, and there is a special call, the same way as there are two types of revelation. There is general revelation, and there is a special revelation. General revelation is what we have in the world around us. Every one of us is without excuse. As we see the creation, as we see the power of God, as we see what God has made, as we see everything that has been brought into being by the power and the wisdom of God. We've been brought to understand as we are brought to a saving knowledge that God made all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Now that's a general revelation. It has revealed to us there is a God. A God who has made all things and by the word of his power. But to be saved, we also need a special revelation. And that special revelation comes to us in the scriptures. It is something God reveals to us by the apostles and the prophets. And as it says in Hebrews, and in these last days, by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the express image of his person. And the image of his divine glory. And so in these things we see God's person being revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
giving us the hope of the calling that this person has effected in us. Paul, when, when he's preaching in Athens on Mars Hill, he talks about this aspect that these times and these seasons God has winked at. But now commands men everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. The preached gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the general call. Everyone is commanded to believe. Everyone has a right to believe, but that's the general call. And that call goes out to everyone. Christ is dead for everyone. And as we preach and proclaim the gospel, and that knowledge, that information is disseminated to all who come under the sound of the preached word. But that's not what Paul is talking about here, the hope of our calling. We who've already believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul wants us to know the hope of that calling. He wants us to be to benefit from the the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. And so Paul is saying to us, you who've already believed, there is also a, an effectual and a special call. See, many of us will languish in hell having heard the general call of the gospel and never coming to an understanding of the true gospel as it is in Christ Jesus. We shall have an intellectual knowledge of what is being said. But we won't have a heart knowledge. It won't penetrate any further than the mind. See, it used to be said by preachers that the way that the gospel works is, is the gospel is heard the ears and understood in the mind. And the mind filters it into the heart. It has to get to the heart, the seat of our emotions, the seat of will before it will take any effect. It's no good just being in the intellectual understanding of what we heard. We can, it could be just like understanding mathematical formulas or scientific formulas. This is to go further than that. This is to interact with what the gospel is saying. It's to come into a living social relationship with what the gospel is saying and to relate to it in our everyday lives. And what really matters is that the work of the Holy Spirit works in us this effectual calling uh, that is spoken of. Uh, that we will be convinced of our sin and misery. We know in this life, our life has misery. We know that the end of our lives, there will be only a lost eternity. And we, we have to be convinced by the Holy Spirit that that's where our lives are leading us, leading us to a lost eternity. We have to have the Holy Spirit give to us an understanding what the Catechism calls and illuminating our minds into the knowledge of Christ. Not only do we have to see the misery of our state in this world without Christ, the Holy Spirit also has to reveal to us the 
the beauty of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, that he has made into us wisdom and, and sanctification and redemption. We have, have to be brought to see this by the Holy Spirit. It's not something we will understand by studying scriptures. It's something that will happen to us by the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so where does that leave us in our relationship with our Saviour God? Well, we pray the Saviour God that he would give us a true understanding of Christ, that he would enlighten our minds into the knowledge of Christ, that he would renew our will from being a will which is obstinate and a will which is hard-hearted and a will which is outside his command, that he would bring us into a, a saving relationship with him by renewing that will and so enabling us to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. So that's what a Christian is. That's what Paul wants us to understand what a Christian is. That's what he's talking about as he talks about the hope of the calling in Christ Jesus. So the called are Christians. And Paul wants us to know the assurance of our calling. The certainty of our being in Christ Jesus. The hope of your calling. The certainty that you are saved. The devil's always there sowing doubts and fears, suggesting that we have never been Christians. Suggesting that all we've experienced is something emotional and that we've never really been Christians at all. But Paul here is saying that the scriptures reveal to you the right way. Again, if we well, in the Roman Catholic Church, our assurance is based on the church. Our assurance is based on the prayers of the church. Our assurance is based on what the church can do for us. But that's, that's not what the scriptures teach us. And it took Martin Luther to discover the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is by faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And the doctrine of justification by faith alone grew out of that understanding of Martin Luther's. And that's what led to the Reformation in Europe and eventually the Reformation in Scotland. And that we have this, this great doctrine of the truth that there is in Christ Jesus. We have all the great names like Luther and Calvin and Knox. They're not just names of history. They are people who are, who are blessed and people who are, who are ordained by God to bring the truth to the masses. If you go back to that time of Luther and Calvin and Knox, there was a great darkness. That's why it was called the Dark Ages. Called the Dark Ages because there was, there was no knowledge of the truth of as there is in Christ Jesus. It was called darkness because there was no the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shining into the hearts of men and women. And it would be a, a terrible effect if the lives we led descended into, into that sort of scenario that we have no light, we have no comfort. The gospel is meant to give us comfort. And so the first step to getting that assurance is a deeper knowledge of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Of what Christ 
effected for us, of what he suffered for us, of the great lengths he went to so that we might be saved. And as we meditate and as we, as we speak and discuss these matters, and that's why communion seasons are so important, as we discuss primarily the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it brings us to a deeper understanding and a surer element of our faith in Christ Jesus. See, God is always eternal. He's always unchangeable. He's always infinite. And there's no greater comfort than knowing that God never starts any work without finishing. What he has promised, he will accomplish. He has promised that all who come unto him seeking faith, seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he will not turn away. But if we go in spirit and in truth, he will welcome us with open arms, he will accede to our requests, and he will fill us with his Holy Spirit and make us new creations in Christ Jesus. We're told in scriptures that he is the father of lights with no variableness or shadow of turning. What he has said, he will accomplish. And so ultimately, our whole position with God rests on his covenant. His everlasting covenant, steadfast and sure. See, the covenant that God made with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the basis of our hope and our calling in Christ Jesus. It's the covenant of redemption made before the earth began. The covenant of redemption whereby God the Father gave to God the Son a certain number. Now we don't know who they are. We know there's a certain number, but we don't know what number that is. But we know the Father gave to the Son a certain number. And all those whom he gave to the Son will come. Scripture calls them the elect in Christ Jesus. Those whom the Father has known before the foundation of the world and those whom he gave to the Son. All those he gives to the Son will come and will be saved and none shall be lost. As Paul says in Romans, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate and whom he did Predestinate, then he also called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, those he also glorified. If God be for us, who can be against us? As you read that passage in Romans chapter 8, the logic is so compelling. It, it so comforts us, and, and so gives us hope, the hope of our calling in Christ Jesus. And none of us shall ever be plucked out of his hand. And finally, we need to understand what's happened to us. If we are born of God, if we are born of the Holy Spirit, we can never fall away. It's impossible. We can't fall from grace. The idea that we can be born of God one day and sin and lose our reward is nothing less than ignorance of the doctrine of regeneration. 
Because once we are regenerate, nothing will ever change that standing in the mind and in the plan of God. If we're Christians, we're united to Christ. As in Romans chapter 5 it says, as we were in Adam, who was our covenant head, so now we are in Christ, who is now our covenant head. As in Adam we died, so in Christ Jesus we are now made alive. The sinfulness of that estate into which man fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first transgression, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of the whole nature. That's what we are in Adam. But in Christ Jesus we are new creations. We are those who are loved by the Father with as much love as he loves his only begotten Son. We are brought into the same situation, the same position, the same standing as Christ has with his Heavenly Father. We'll never be begotten sons, but we will be adoptive sons. And as you know, in a family where there are natural children and adoptive children, there's no difference, or there should be no difference, between those who are adopted and those who are natural born. And the same thing applies in the relationship of our Heavenly Father, where there is perfection. He will love perfectly His old son. He will love perfectly His own adoptive children. And there shall be no difference in that love towards us. As we were in Adam, as our covenant head, so we are now in Christ, and our lives are hid with Christ in God. As the hymn writer says, On this solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Do we know in this hope of our calling? Are we filled with assurance that God loves us and he is not going to let us go? See, ultimately, our salvation, our hope, is in the promises God made. The promises God made to his Son. The promises God made that none shall ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The world can never know that hope. The world can never have that assurance. But as Christians, we can know it. And as Christians, we should know it. And that is a very easy pillow to lie on as we approach the end of our days here in this world. May it be that you will know the hope of the calling that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Let us then conclude our worship singing to God's praise in Psalm 86. Psalm 86 on page 341. And verse 9. All nations whom thou made shall come and worship reverently before thy face and they, O Lord, thy name shall glorify. We'll sing to the end of the verse, Mark 12, that's four stanzas to God's praise.
by my grace, mercy, and peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, rest on you and abide in you now and always. Amen.